It's easy to notice the distance between people, across a room, across the aisle, across the globe. Often, the media, politicians, educators, and even our neighbors seem to emphasize difference, creating chasms between us. But what if the shortest distance between two people is actually a story? Welcome to The Shortest Distance, Story Center's new podcast. We'll be sharing stories and conversations that explore the joys and challenges of human connection. If you listen to our teaser episode, or if you follow our work, you know that since the pandemic began, Story Center has been offering online COVID-19 storytelling workshops. What you may not know is that we're also offering a couple of new podcast workshops. For our first season of The Shortest Distance, we're highlighting some of the great work that's coming out of these sessions. Here's chapter one, Nuestras Raices, or Our Roots, which features a conversation between Story Center's Amy Hill and Marta Martinez, founder and director of the Rhode Island Latino Oral History Project. For some people in the United States, the act of going to college is just a given. Their parents went, their grandparents went, so they'll go. Their families will pay for it, or they'll get student loans or scholarships or jobs. And after four years or so, if they make it through, they'll walk out with some memories, a diploma, and hopefully some skills that end up being useful in one way or another. This is how it was for me, and I'm eternally grateful for the experience. And for some people, this isn't the case at all. Either they don't want to go to college because they're not interested, or maybe they can't afford to go because it's so crazy expensive, and they don't qualify for government funding. That's the reality for most dreamers, people who've lived in the U.S. without official authorization since coming here as minors. The term was coined way back in 2001, when the very first federal legislation was proposed to create a path to citizenship for those brought to this country without documentation when they were kids. Flash forward 20 years, and believe it or not, that path still doesn't exist. The Dream and Promise Act of 2021 would finally make it possible for dreamers to apply for federally funded government loans and scholarships, but it's languishing in the Senate totally overshadowed in the news cycle by the latest on the anti-vaxxers and the insanity of all the new voter suppression laws in the works, and lots of other things changing at the blink of an eye. Victor Morente came on his own to the U.S. from Guatemala when he was really young to join family members who were already here. He's one of the hundreds of people who've been interviewed by Marta Martinez, the founder of the Rhode Island Latino Oral History Project. Literally hundreds of people. Both Victor and Marta have been working for years to advocate for immigrant rights, especially for immigrant access to government funding for college. Since we're in the middle of Latino Heritage Month and students have returned to college across the country, it seemed like a good time to talk with her about why she chose to highlight Victor's story out of all the people she's interviewed. I I never connected with a, a narrator as much as I did with Victor. I just was speechless. Um, and it was just so moving and so touching and so personal for him and for me. That's why I selected it, because it it means a lot to me. So here's Victor, 
talking about his journey to the U.S. years ago. I was six years old. I remember actually it was uh, the morning of my sixth birthday. And uh, my aunt came into the room and said, hey, uh, we're going to go see your mother. I had no idea what the U.S. was. I just knew that my mother was there. I had no memory of my mother. I didn't know what she looked like. But what I did know was that I loved her and that she loved me and that whatever decision she made was for my best interest. So I was incredibly excited. Um, and all I remember is the diesel fumes from the first bus that I jumped on. I remember getting up, uh, getting on the bus, uh, beginning a journey that I had no idea how or what, what I was going to be doing. Um, I remember crossing the desert. I remember crossing uh, El Rio Grande. Um, I actually remember getting onto the tubes, onto a base floor, and basically hung up as folks, you know, pulled us across the river. Um, I was a kid, so I had no idea what I was doing was either wrong or right. What I knew was my mom was in search for a better life, and she had finally um, saved up enough money for me to come over. Victor eventually made his way to Providence, Rhode Island, where his mother lived. He talks about seeing his mom after so many years and what it was like to be in that new place that would become his home. I actually remember, like, it was just yesterday, I remember walking up the little um, the driveway and seeing her come down, and it was snowing. It was actually the first time that I saw snow as well. My mother actually had a, a son while she was here uh, with my stepfather, uh, so that was the first time that I met him as well. And to show you a little bit of how much of a, a drastic difference it was between where I came from and where I was, I walked into my brother's uh, nursery and I saw toys everywhere. And I remember growing up, I, I felt lucky that I had a bicycle. I had one Power Ranger. And so I remember that first night I played with the toys. It was, it was pretty late, but I was so excited that I played with them. And before I went to bed, I actually put them in lines and organized them so that I could see them when I went to bed because I was afraid that I would wake up and they wouldn't be there the next day. For the next 10 minutes or so, Victor goes on to talk about how his parents got up at 4 a.m. every morning for their factory jobs, about how they thought they'd have to go back to Guatemala when their request for political asylum was denied, and about how hard it was for him to go to college when the time came because of the cost. Listening to him, I felt heartbroken for how scary it must have been to take that long journey to the U.S. on his own, and frustrated for him and everyone else in his situation for what's happening, or rather not happening, with the newest DREAM Act. There's not much of Marta in the episode or on her oral history website, but that's the thing about oral historians. They love learning about other people. It's their job to listen, which means they don't often get the chance to share their own stories. So I had to ask. We were hoping that you could share a little bit about your own experience. So I know that you grew up in Southern Texas, and I'm just curious to hear what it was like for you as a kid to see and hear experiences of, of migrants. Well, I, I grew up in a border town, El Paso, Texas, and I wasn't so much hearing. I was experiencing it personally. I had friends. El Paso borders Ciudad Juarez. And when I was growing up, it was easy to cross. Now it, it's not that, that's not the case. But there were students who used to come to school to El Paso from Juarez. They were Spanish speaking or they were bilingual. And we knew that not, not all of them had papers. Some of them um, stayed for a week or would go home. We called them borders. And it was more because they were 
they, they were like going to a border school. Some people think that we call them borders because they lived on the border, but that's not the case. And several times, at least, we would hear a knock on our, our classroom door, and it was the Border Patrol. They were, and they gave a name to the teacher, and the student got up and left. And there was one very good friend of mine that happened to her, and I never saw her again. I don't know what happened to her or her family. I mean, most of us were Mexican-American, I'd say 90%. Um, there was fear. I had fear. I never knew. And I knew I was born, I, I was American. But like, as I got older as a teenager and I started driving, whenever I saw a police car, I, I was afraid. I did not want to be stopped. Uh, I didn't know what would happen. And uh, many of the Mexican-Americans and the Mexicans who used to come to school, when you see the Border Patrol, I mean, they're authority. You don't question it. They're allowed. Um, this was in the 60s. This was an elementary school I'm talking about. And um, it was it was common. When it happened, we were frightened. And we always hoped and assumed that we would see them again. And in a few cases, it just didn't happen. Um, I lived right behind the school. And, and when you looked out my back window, I could see Juarez. That's how close I lived to the border. And we used to get knocks on our door at home looking for people because sometimes they would cross the river and just go into neighborhoods. And so um, I had family members who were deported. So the, the topic of immigration and being sent back to a country where you did not grow up is very personal in that way. It makes so clear the particular connection you have to Victor's story. You know, in that whole piece when he's just a little boy and he's only six years old. And and I'm just wondering what you were feeling when you were hearing him share that part of his journey. You know, you read all of the news stories about unaccompanied minors and think about how harrowing it is. But to really hear that first person description. Just like now, I got to tell you, my heart is thumping. I could feel it. Uh, I remember that moment when I, I never saw my friend again. And I, I did used to look out my back window from my house and see people crossing the river. Um, and it was just that sadness and fear is like, here they come and they could be sent right back. Um, for them to be brave and to take that very important step of crossing the river and, you know, getting, getting away with it if they're not caught or getting caught. Um, and my heart was just thumping when Victor was speaking. Um, my jaw was open, and I was, in a way, reliving it. And I think I may have found myself having a hard time asking questions. I knew what she was talking about. I've sat with people and listened to some tough stories over the years. The one by a young woman overseas whose in-laws set her on fire because she didn't do the chores to their liking. The one by a colleague who moved to Canada from Lebanon and brought with her a hand-drawn map of the Palestinian refugee camp where an infamous massacre took place back in the 80s. The one by an elderly woman in Louisiana whose body and community has been marred by the abuse of family members and the racism of corporations, politicians, and so many other words pulled up from the depths of storytellers' memories in a shared space of witnessing. It's not therapy, and nobody who does this kind of work would claim that it is, but when you're really there and open and able to hear with no agenda other than wanting to be available, it's something for the ones telling and the ones listening, 
a kind of connection that's so rare. So when I was done with him, I noticed he was sweating. And he was wiping himself as he was talking, but he kept talking. And so I literally sat there with my mouth wide open. I just had never heard that detail in a story. For him to just tell it like that straight nonstop. Um, and he just had a look. And you could hear him once in a while take a little gulp. I don't know if you listen carefully. He, It wasn't so much trying to find the right words. It was, I think he was just, his mouth was dry. He, he spoke for half an hour. You know, at Story Center, you probably know, we do a lot of uh, storytelling workshops where we bring people together in small groups to share. And one of the things that we've seen is that when the space is held and, and things go well, it can be sometimes a really cathartic experience for people in terms of helping them put words to an experience maybe that they haven't really articulated in words or that they haven't had the time, space to reflect on. And in fact, there's actually a bunch of research that suggests that sharing stories in that way can really enhance people's well-being. And I'm sure there's similar literature for oral history, but I'm just wondering, like in your observation, did he share that it was, you know, kind of a relief? But when he was done, I walked up to him, I said, are you all right? He goes, yeah, I feel good. I feel good. And he just smiled. His shoulders were down. I really saw his body language change. And I've noticed that when we do oral histories, it does become cathartic. Um, I've had to acquire skills. And part of what you do when you're conducting interviews is you just let people talk. Just let them go. I know that you've done so many interviews with the, the Latino Oral History Project. And so I'm just curious with the podcast, why does it feel especially important now to be getting these dreamers stories out? Um, yeah, the 2021 Dream Act is it's still at a standstill. Um, and it's hard to focus. For Washington to focus, there's so much going on. And it just seems like immigration reform is not at the top, unfortunately. President Biden has brought up the subject. Um, there was a decision in Texas, DACA was going to be overturned. So it was in the news then, but there's just so many things changing. DACA, in case you don't know, stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It's the policy that President Obama authorized in 2012 that allows some dreamers to avoid deportation and become eligible for work permits. Unlike the DREAM Act, DACA does not provide a path to citizenship. Of course, Trump rescinded it, and a bunch of court cases ensued with specifics too complicated to go into. Eventually, President Biden issued an executive order reinstating DACA, but then came the decision Marta just referred to, by a federal judge in Texas, who barred the government from accepting new applications to the program, effectively canceling Biden's executive order. And now Biden has proposed a federal rule to modify DACA in order to, quote, preserve and fortify it against future legal challenges, and so on. And amidst all the back and forth, as of March 31st this year, the 616,030 DACA recipients already registered with the program are waiting. These kids still don't qualify for federal aid, and, you know, it just seems like putting it out there in these podcasts is to let people know exactly that. That's where the immigration reform comes. So they can't fell out, for example, like the Pell Grant application. 
all of those incentives for that college students get to help them pay for college uh, work study. They don't qualify for work study because those are federal dollars. That's part of my advocacy is we we raise money and we offer them tuition or scholarships to help pay for the in-state tuition. Yeah, I have a pretty personal connection to that. Um, my husband is from Ethiopia, and he came here when he was in his early 20s and put himself through college driving a cab. So, you know, it's just kind of profound to think about the ways that that really can curtail people's opportunities. Here I have to interrupt myself and just say, I did tell my husband about this podcast episode, and he's fine with me sharing parts of his story. He came on an education visa and then applied for asylum because the regime in Ethiopia had just turned over. While his case was being processed, he was given a work permit. But like the Dreamers, he wasn't eligible for government funding for school, so it took him a while to save up enough money to even enroll. And when I asked him to tell me what it was like, he just said, it was really hard. He worked 12-hour days for the taxi company, and the two days he had off, he went to class. Instead of getting a degree in the standard four years, it took him seven. But let's get back to my conversation with Marta now. We were talking about why it's important to highlight stories like Victor's. You know, I remember the part in Victor's interview where he talks about how U.S. citizens can't really understand his struggles to go to college because they haven't walked in those shoes. And I don't know if you could share just how that lands with you. These stories spell it out. I mean, people have to understand the hard work that the Victor's go through just to be where they are. And he doesn't really believe in sitting down and telling everybody a story or walking around with a sign that says I wasn't documented. Later on, as I spoke to him, he goes, this piece that I did for you, I did it because that's me telling everybody who I am. I don't want them to assume they know who I am. I don't want any help. I just want you to understand that there are many other me's out there that you don't know who you sit, sit next to in the bus, in church, or walk next to. They could be me. Here's a little bit from Victor on this topic. I'm a U.S. citizen. Uh, I became a permanent resident after waiting 16 years for my, my case to be processed. Uh, unfortunately, often it's believed that folks don't want to do it the right way, and I think that term, doing it the right way itself, is very loaded. Most people would want to do it the right way. When folks often talk about the immigrant story, um, I think that a lack of understanding is a result of just not going through the same circumstances. Um, if you were born here, you often don't have to face some of the horrors, some of the poverty, some of the violence that some folks in other countries do. Victor's talking about his own situation and about migrants in the current era, but I couldn't help thinking about the bigger history of immigration to the U.S. when I listened to him. Like the much bigger history. The people who were displaced from their land or killed because of colonization. The people who were brought here forcefully and suffered unimaginable pain because of slavery. The people fleeing religious persecution, authoritarian regimes, famine. The people just wanting an education or a better life for their children. The people in my own chosen family from East Africa. And on and on. 
how many generations removed from all this does it take to end up with that lack of understanding that Victor talks about? I feel like zeroing in on specific stories, like Marta does, is somehow a way to weave the strands of these larger issues together and allow people to make sense of them. Here's what Marta said about what Victor's up to today. When I recorded this, Victor was the communications director for the mayor of Providence. And now, on the past year, he became the communications director for the Rhode Island Department of Education. So he moved away from working in city government to state government because he told me later that that's the place where he feels he can do more that, that inspires him, you know, that they need him there. I agree with her that they definitely need Victor. Actually, I feel like all government departments, all school districts, all professions, all communities need him. Need those other me's that he talks about. Need people like him. And doesn't all that potential already exist within immigrant communities all over the country? Within communities who haven't come here yet? The landscape around dreamers and immigration reform is hard to keep up with, like Marta says. It's changing all the time, and the topic is so charged right now and will probably only become more so, with people desperate to escape from war or poverty or the devastation of climate change. How can immigration policy be welcoming, respectful, driven by compassion instead of political agendas? Knowing what's happening legally is important, But isn't knowing about people's lives important, too? To learn more about Victor, tune in to Raíces Nuestras Historias de Rhode Island on SoundCloud. This episode of The Shortest Distance was created by me, Amy Hill, together with Marta Martinez and Ryan Truman, and features the music of Blue Dot Sessions. An extra special thanks to Victor Morente, who gave permission for us to excerpt Marta's podcast episode about him. To find out about StoryCenter's work, visit us online at storycenter.org.